good to see you all again. Thanks, Clint, for introducing me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you could turn to Psalm 134, is what I'm going to be preaching from today. It is super duper short. It's only three verses, and it is the last of the Psalms of Ascent, or the Songs of Ascent. And I'll spend some time explaining what a Song of Ascent is, but to summarize it really quick, these are Psalms about going to church, Psalms about worshiping. And that's what I'm going to look at today. So let me read for us Psalm 134, and then I'll pray, and we'll talk about it. This is the word of the Lord, Psalm 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we have a morning where we can come and worship you. Um, where we can hear your word sung and read. Um, and we can feast on it. God, I ask that you would give us uh, the gift and the blessing of your presence as we come to the part of the worship where we hear a sermon. God, some of us love listening to sermons. Some of us hate it. Uh, no matter what we bring to the table, no matter where our hearts are this morning, would you give us a sense of welcome and the knowledge that you are present with us and that your presence is good. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, uh, as Clint said, I, I'm George. I am the RUF campus minister at Emory University. My wife, and I, and my wife Laura, and I have been here for a year, and I've been doing that. Uh, but I grew up in Alabama. Uh, anybody from Alabama around here? got some Alabama people. There's at least one. Uh, so I-65 goes north to south through Alabama, and right in the middle of the state of Alabama on I-65, there's this very famous monument that if you're from Alabama, you know what it is. Just before you get to Montgomery, there's a farm and a pond and a huge sign on the side of the interstate. You know what I'm talking about, and it says in big letters, go to church or the devil will get you. Uh, and it has, like, this, uh, like, big red devil with a scythe, like, sweeping. It's this huge sign. It's been there my whole life. Go to church or the devil will get you. Um, and you can get t-shirts of it, and people talk about it all the time, and they roll their eyes about it, but they also think it's funny. There's a, a coffee shop in Birmingham that my wife and I love called Church Street Coffee, and they had these t-shirts that was just a picture of the sign that said, Go to Church Street Coffee or the devil will get you. And I love that sign. I, I, I love hate that sign. I hated that sign growing up for the same reason most of my friends hated that sign, especially my friends who were not Christians or religious. Because that sign did not read like an invitation to church. It read like a slap in the face. It read like it communicated, people who go to church are better than you because you don't go to church. So you little devil need to get out of your house and go to church right now. And I don't know anyone who saw that sign and felt like, you know what that sign makes me want to do? Go to church. <laughs> uh, and I've wrestled with that sign because it's fun. I can only laugh at it because it makes me so sad. Because it's very easy to think of church and a life that is spent in church, and in particular an hour on Sunday morning spent at a church, as this like hard, painful thing we have to do 
so that bad things don't happen to us or so that we don't become bad people. Um, the Psalms of Ascent is a section of the book of Psalms where we have uh, songs of people who are going to worship. The idea of ascent means they're going up. It could have meant going up the mountain, or it could have just meant going up the steps of the temple. But the idea is that it's about 14, 15 songs, and they're here in the text of the, uh, because these were, these were psalms of, of normal Israelites, like normal religious people, who were singing about what it was like to take a break every week from what they were doing and go worship in the temple. And what is magnificent about the songs of ascent is they tell a story of church life that, is, that sounds nothing like the go to church or the devil will get you signed, but rather a picture of something beautiful. That as the week wore on, as their bodies wore down in work, going to worship in the temple was actually something that their bodies ached for and their hearts longed for. And that there they found glory, they found celebration, and they found rest. And so what we see in these psalms is a people who are, who are singing songs together about this thing that they get to do that is so deeply satisfying and nourishing their souls. And that was the gift of worship. Uh, I call this sermon the beauty of worship, um, and I do so for a number of reasons, but particularly because Psalm 134 is the last of the Psalms of Ascent. It's the final one. It's sort of the finale, and it's super duper short because it has this strange cadence to it. And actually, most theologians have said that, including Charles Spurgeon, has said that in Psalm 34, you see something like a dialogue of multiple people speaking. I'm going to go deeper on that a little later, but what I want you to hear is, is this is the finale of the Songs of Ascent. You've had all these psalms about life worshiping and going to worship with other people and going to church, and then there's this last one. It sort of ties it up um, and it has this, if you can like sit and close your eyes and listen to this psalm happen. I'm going to read it again just so we can do that. You get the sense that what's happening is sort of like the celebratory toasts at the end of a great party. There's been dancing, there's been music, there's been weeping, there's been, there's been reunion. And the end of the night, people are raising toasts to each other. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. May the Lord bless you. Uh, it reminds me of that, of that song in Hamilton where uh, they're like, to the, br- to the groom, to the groom, to the bride, to the bride. Like, this is, this is the finale moment. This is the closing toasts of worship. And there is something deeply beautiful about it. Because in these toasts, you can see a reflection on, what, uh, on all the Psalms of Ascent. You can see the people singing Psalm 134 as... as they are, it's, the, it's the deep breath celebrating the beauty that they just participated in in worship. And so that's what I want to see. What is the beauty of worship that they participate in? Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And then there's a little break, and it says, May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. This is the beauty of worship that we see in the Psalms of Ascent, and we see it most especially in the finale, Psalm 134, is that worship blesses us. It blesses the Lord. You know, we're worshiping God, but 
but it blesses us. Worship is a blessing for us. And so I want to see that in two ways. If you're an outline follower and you're like, I need to know where we're at in this sermon so I can keep up, I'm going to do it in two parts. Describing the beauty of worship, how worship blesses us, is the power of worship, and the rest in worship. The power of worship and the rest in worship. So part one, scene A, the power of worship. Um, Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Those first two verses, you hear a call, a, a sort of toast to those who are worshiping. There's this cheer, there's like this blessing, good on you who are there worshiping the Lord. They, the, the psalmists, um, and it doesn't have a name associated with it, so the people who, re, who, who sing this song regularly, um, they are proclaiming that when we actually, when we, when we give praise to God, there's something deeply good about it. And I want to be very, like, I kind of want to go way back to the drawing board with this. I don't know how you feel about praising things or people or God at all. You might not, I don't want to just assume that because you're here that you're, like, totally cool with praising God or maybe praising anything. In fact, the idea of worshiping something might be a little bit scary to you. And I want to take that seriously. Uh, It might be scary to you because the idea of worshiping is a very scary, vulnerable thing. Because when we talk about worshiping, what we're talking about is giving of our energies, our time, our love, our, our power towards something else. And we're putting ourselves at the mercy of it. And worship can be scary because often when we think about worship, we, we don't know if the thing that we are going to give ourselves to is actually deserving of our worship or safe for us to give ourselves to. Uh, I, um, uh, you know what, I was going to use an illustration for Stranger Things. I'm not. It's gross. I'm going to cut it out. Um, but there, there is a way in which you can be called to worship something, to give yourself to something, to sacrifice yourself for something, and it is not good. Something wants to devour you, and you need to not sacrifice yourself to that. And I want you to, like, when the Bible calls you to worship, it is not calling you to, to like, disrespect yourself to separate yourself from your soul, to harm yourself, or to not love yourself. The call to worship is not a call to hate yourself, but it is a call to give yourself to something. And the first thing I want us to see in the power of worship is, is that worship allows you to give yourself to something that is actually worth giving yourself to, and it is good. Uh, my kids love Frozen, and so Frozen and the movie Frozen 2 are a huge part of life in our house. Like, if you want to know how to survive in the handhold, you have to know the lyrics to some Frozen songs. It's very important. It's contextualization in our house. you got to know Frozen. Uh, and so we listen to Frozen 2 soundtrack all the time, and we started to hear, like, the deep cuts. There were songs that didn't make it into the movie. And now we know the deep cut Frozen songs. And there's a Frozen 2 song that is on the soundtrack that wasn't in the movie called um, Home. Does anybody with little kids actually know this song? My home, my home. 
Yeah, no one does. That's really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> embarrassing, embarrassing for you guys for not knowing the Frozen 2 song. But uh, there's this line in that song. So what the song is about uh, this main character, Anna, is dancing through the streets of Arendelle, her hometown. And she's singing about how much she loves it. She's singing about how beautiful the buildings are and how she knows everybody and everybody's granddad and everybody's great-granddad. And she knows where the roads go and she knows what the, what the water on the edge of town smells like. She's like, she's glorying in this town. She's dancing around singing about how much she loves this town. And there's this line that sticks with me. She says, I look at this place I live and I wonder, what more can I give to this home? And something so precious sticks out to me there because uh, in the song she's recognizing, I love something, a place, so much that I feel compelled to give to it, to serve it. it actually, a sense in which she, the song kind of, I think we can, all, I can move from the song, I think we can all understand what this feels like, that you can love something so much that the idea of not just receiving from it, but actually giving to it sort of completes and fulfills the love. That like, I can't even actually enjoy the love I have for this thing. I think about this with my spouse, like I can't actually enjoy the love I have for her until I experience the process of, of serving her, of actually giving of my, like, actually really want to. And this is what it means to worship, is you were actually made to experience that love, to actually give yourself to something that is worth giving yourself to, and uh, the sort of like when Iron Man's little thing gets clicked on, this like blue light flashes and suddenly he's like that your love for something sort of comes alive as you actually get to participate in serving it. And this is the power of worship is that God actually calls us and says the thing that your heart longs to be given to is me. And there's a million things out there that you give yourself to. You give your time, your energy, your glory, your worship. Uh, you pour yourself for, that will not serve you. And the Bible's saying, here is the thing. Here is the thing that actually makes your love good that as you give yourself to. It's, you're not just being poured out, you're also being filled up. And that is the worship of God. That we're actually made to worship God and, then, and, and once we do, it shapes us into something joyful, something beautiful, something extraordinary. And that happens because when we worship God, God blesses us. Look at verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion. Zion is his holy mountain. That's God's pulpit. Like, that's where he's at. And, and this psalm is saying, like, as you come into worship, God blesses you. Do you know that? I'll tell, I, I, let me rephrase this. I don't know that all the time, or at least I forget it. And I feel guilty when I'm late to church. Or if I'm not, pay, like, I don't know how many times a sermon has ended, and I'm like, oh, I have no idea that was about, because I wasn't paying attention because I was so distracted. And you know what? I feel, like, really bad about myself. I just want you to hear that that's not the way God actually wants us to exist in church. That, like, church is not something we come to just, to just to honor God and so that he can have, you know, he can get his praise so the devil doesn't get us. But actually, like, we come and, and God actually wants to bless 
us. He comes and he gives us his presence. Um, I spent a lot of time wrestling with the word bless because it's in here a few times. And what does it mean to bless? Um, the Hebrew words that are typically used as blessed is to, to praise or to congratulate or extol. Um, but it's interesting that when the, when the Bible talks about blessing, it's always this, it's this giving of gifts and goodness under a certain condition. And usually when it's God, like people bless each other all the time. I bless you with a gift of land. I bless you with a young cow. But like when God blesses his people, pretty much all the time, what he's, what, the, the, the gift he's giving them is his presence with them. His arm around their shoulder, like his presence with his hurting, angry, scared, distracted, asleep people. And I'm reminded of a, one of my favorite times in the Bible where, where Jesus talks about blessing his people. It's in John 20, 29. Um, you don't have to turn there, but this is where the famous story where uh, uh, Jesus' disciple Thomas was not really sure that the resurrection happened, right? He's like, I don't know if Jesus actually rose from the dead, and until I see his body, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus being kind and understanding that the resurrection is a hard thing to believe shows up and is like, Thomas, touch my side. Touch my hands. And he, like, he actually gives Thomas the, the evidence that he needed to believe, and Thomas is overcome with gratitude and love, and he falls down and praises the Lord. And then Jesus says this really weird thing. He says, you've seen and you've believed, and that's good. And then it's sort of like Jesus kind of breaks the fourth wall and looks out of the book and into the future or into the person reading, and he says, blessed are those who will never see and yet believe. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, like, like there are going to be generations and thousands and thousands of years where there are people who cannot touch my body and, or, or, or feel my hands, but they're still going to come and worship. Jesus is looking, saying, I am going to be very present with those people. I'm going to, to give them the gift of my presence. And he's saying that to us. So the power of worship is that it gives you a place for your love. And in it, Jesus, who knows that it is hard to believe, is present with you there. And that is an, inc an incredible gift. Um, and that's why, like, that's why God calls us to come and worship. To worship with song, even if you can't sing, especially if you can't. To worship with liturgies. Even if, like, you don't know what to say, like, we have these wonderful prayers to read together, and we have folks come up and read prayers for you. Like, God gives you the words and the lyrics and the tunes and the room, and he just invites you to come and, and, and participate in the glory, in the party that is worship. Um, so... There is something else that's important about worship that we see in this, and I want to kind of move to the second. There's, there's a particular sort of party that is worship, this glory, but there's also a, a special sort of sense of rest in worship, the rest that is present in worship. I said at the beginning that lots of theologians have seen this uh, psalm as a dialogue, that there are multiple people talking. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says that he hears the voice of the minister and the voice of the pilgrim. The minister, the person, you know, the, the Levite, that this is, this is the person whose full-time job it was to work at the church. 
Uh, but then the pilgrim. The pilgrim is the person who is just Joe and Jane Israelite. They had jobs, they had families, they had lots going on, and they had about an hour or two free a week to go to the temple. The pilgrim. And Spurgeon is saying, I'm hearing both of them speak here. The pilgrim says, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. The pilgrim is praising the ministers here, the Levites, the priests. And the priest responds to the pilgrim, may the Lord bless you from Zion. He who is the maker of heaven and earth on his mountain, may he bless you, little pilgrim. There's something powerful about this dialogue. Because in that first section, you're seeing an address towards the, pers- the minister, the per- like the Levite. These are all interchangeable words for the person whose full-time job it was to go to the, to the temple and do stuff. That was the, we, the typical term for that in the Old Testament was the priest. The priest, uh, if, if you're unfamiliar with that word, a priest is a little bit different than just like a preacher. A priest is, uh, is a ministry worker who acts as an intermediary, intermediary between God and God's people. The priest represents the people before God and goes and does stuff. And actually, uh, the priest in the Old Testament, Israel, and around the time when they were singing these songs, the priest had a lot of hard work to do. Because even when, e- even when the people were like as loving as could be, even when they were worshiping great, even if you were to ask Joe and Jane Pilgrim, how's your spiritual life going? They would rattle off all the great things and how comfortable they feel. Like even at the best times, they wounded each other and they wounded themselves. They were tempted to sin, and they gave in. They were wounded or broken by the sin of other people. Like, even at the best of times, life in community was very hard. And the community's experience of the world around them was very hard. And God, in his mercy, uh, gave a gift, another gift to the people, and that was the gift of this sort of sacrificial system. I say sort of. It was a sacrificial system in which all, like this very complex network of sacrifices and rites and offerings and duties were performed in the temple in order to atone for the sinfulness of the people and to ask God for his presence and care in the midst of turmoil. There was actually a mechanism that that needed to be participated in. And the priests were the people who would say, hey, I'm going to go to the temple and I'm going to do that. Um, and so the, like, Joe and Jane Pilgrim, normal person, they couldn't, like, do all the stuff to make their life better. They didn't have time to atone for all the sins, nor, nor is there enough time in the world for anyone. And they couldn't solve all of their problems, and they were in so much turmoil, but they had this gift, and that was that they knew at night, when I am in my bed, my body tired from work, my soul aching from pain and brokenness, that up the mountain at the temple, there is a priest ministering on my behalf tonight. And that was a great comfort. And we see that in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. The pilgrims are toasting those who are caring for them while they rest. That these people could rest because the priest was in the temple for them. Um, 
we, not, I, I'm not assuming everyone here, but myself and maybe probably lots of folks here, call ourselves Christians. In doing so, we are, we are saying that we, we are the, a particular sort of religious people where we don't just believe that there is a God and God wants us to worship him and be good, but actually that God came to earth as Jesus Christ. And there was something so particular and special about him that we actually turn our worship towards him. And you know what that thing is? That Jesus Christ is our priest. We see this in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read it. Uh, it's, it's actually only 10 verses, but it is a whole chapter of Hebrews. And I'll read fast. Hebrews chapter 5 uh, says, uh, says this, and it's awesome. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins for the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron, a Levite, one of the people that Psalm 34 is singing about, was. And in this same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said, today you are my son, I have begotten, I have begotten you. You are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He learned obedience, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. For he was designated by God to be our high priest. What's this saying? It's saying that something changed. There was not a need for a sacrificial system anymore because Jesus actually became the sacrifice. He, he didn't, you know, do away with all that. He actually fulfilled it. He finished it. And what he leaves us with is something amazing. You know what he leaves? He is our minister by night. That Jesus is now the one who atones for your sins and cares for you and provides for you. And ask the Father in heaven for blessing and comfort for you, for me. That, you, that we can lay in our bed tonight, our bodies exhausted from work, our hearts broken by difficulty, our minds confused by the turmoil and confusion around us and say, there is a Jesus in the temple for me. And he's doing the work, and so I can actually rest in that. Um, there's a pastor, a theologian guy in Presbyterian circles named Rob Rayburn, and he tells this story about when he was a little bit older, uh, he was in the Army Reserves as a chaplain, and uh, so this was, would have been a long time ago. In the time of the Korean War, as he was a little bit older, like in his 50s, he gets called up to serve in Korea, um, and he is going to be serving as a chaplain with a, 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 para like a parachuting squad, and he's only had a little bit of training. But they tell him, we're going to send you out to Korea. Uh, you're going to get some training there before you have to do any sort of big jumps. So he gets on a plane. He deploys. He's on the ground in Korea for just under two days and is woken up uh, one morning by a sergeant who says, there's been a change of plans. We're leaving tonight. 
we're jumping at midnight behind enemy lines, and you have to go with the team. And he's like, I, I don't have enough training. I've only ever done two jumps. I don't think I can do this. And there's like, nope, you have to do it. We'll have some, there, some guys there with you, but you have to do it. So needless to say, Rayburn is a little bit freaked out. He's terrified. Um, and he, uh, he, he tells the story that he like felt sick all day and was so scared. And the sun goes down and close to midnight they board this plane. And he's just shaking with fear. And he doesn't know what to do, and he sits down on the floor of, you know, Big C-130, and he begins quietly saying to himself in his head the Lord's Prayer, and he gets to the final words, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, No, all right, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And in those words, he realizes, like, Jesus is the king, and this is his kingdom, and I belong to him. And the way he tells the story is he started saying the words to himself quietly, Jesus has me. Jesus has me. Jesus has me. Jesus has me. And the next thing he knows, his sergeant is kicking him and saying, hey, get up, get up. It's time to go. It's time to jump. And he's been asleep for three hours. He just fell asleep. Asleep on the plane. Uh, he made the jump. The jump went well. He survived. But everyone was talking about that old man who slept on the plane. And they came to him, and they said, we were so scared. I mean, these were like, like you know, 19-year-old boys. They're like, we were so scared. And you were asleep. How could you do that? Were you not scared? And he was like, oh, I was terrified. And they're like, well, how, did, well, how could you sleep in a moment like that? How could, in a moment of, of absolute turmoil and terror, you could fall asleep? And his answer was, because Jesus has me. And he goes on to say that four of those guys actually became Christians because they saw that there's something about Christianity that allows a person in a time of turmoil and abject terror, when confusion swirls around them, to take a nap. This is the gift we have in Jesus. No matter how bad things get, no matter what swirls around us, Jesus ministers on our behalf by night in the temple. He is there for us. I'll close with this. There is the second part of the dialogue, as the one in the temple speaks back to the pilgrims. So I'm going to read these words again. And these are the words of Jesus to us as he works on our behalf. He says this, May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who is the maker of heaven and earth, may he bless you. The gospel is that Jesus goes before us, and the good news of the gospel is that he does so because he loves us, and that worshiping him is a deep and abiding blessing to us because he chooses to bless us all the time. Jesus says to you, bless you. Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, as we try to worship week in and week out. Would you help us not feel the shame of being imperfect, but the joy of knowing that you love us. Teach us to celebrate that love uh, week in and week out. In your name we pray. Amen.